Bonhoeffer is one of Jesus' exemplary disciples of the last century. His faithfulness to Christ in the midst of a, a failing church has borne witness long after his short life. After completing his doctorate at the age of 21, the underachiever grew to become a, a significant figure in, in the resistance against Hitler and the broken German church. In, in 1933, the threat of Nazi power was growing in Germany, and, and many were concerned about the compromise of the church with the Nazi movement. The church was capitulating and cooperating with the Reich, handing loyalties that belonged to Christ to the Fuhrer. And Bonhoeffer expert Galen Barker pointed out that Hitler did not merely want to rule Germany politically, rather he wanted to control the hearts and souls of its citizens. At a very fundamental level, therefore, this was as much a religious battle as it was a political struggle. When a Nazi-supported group gained control of the German Evangelical Church, they wanted to exclude all non-Aryan clergy, revise the liturgy to make it more German, and even to remove the Old Testament from the Bible. In uh, 1934, at a, a gathering that led to the establishment of a group known as the Confessing Church, Bonhoeffer signed the Barman Declaration, which was a, a manifesto of fidelity to Christ. Seeing the weakness of many German pastors and their lack of preparation for obedience to Christ and resistance to the regime, the Confessing Church sensed the need for stronger training. And so in 1935, Bonhoeffer accepted the invitation to create an underground seminary that would match orthodox belief with orthodox practice. His vision was to create an intentional Christian community centered around Jesus' principles found in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the providence of God, a large empty house was available in the, the rural town of Finkenwald. And there this schedule of life and study began. Seminary life centered on, on prayer, scriptures, confession, shared rhythms. And much of the vision of this gathering was included in Bonhoeffer's well-known works, Life Together and the Cost of Discipleship, that were written at this time. Bonhoeffer wrote during this period that the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Their daily rhythm of life was built on a vision of a new kind of disciple, one who is characterized by fidelity to Christ. Right? Fidelity to Christ despite the cost. One who believed in Christ's millennial reign, not the reign of the Reich. This robust vision of discipleship would then be tested as the Gestapo would arrest more than two dozen students after the seminary was shut down. Uh, a friend of Bonhoeffer's, Willem Niesel, journeyed to visit Bonhoeffer at the seminary, and they gathered and they talked and were catching up, and a snippet of their time together is recorded in uh, Niesel's book. And Bonhoeffer led Niesel up a, a small hill to a clearing from which they could see uh, a vast field in the distance and the, uh, the runways of an air squadron. And so planes are taking off and landing. Soldiers are, are moving around hurriedly like ants. And, and Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generations of Germans that were in training, right, whose, whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. You have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. That's from Niesel's book. So what Bonhoeffer was doing had to be stronger than what Hitler was doing with his army. Right? For Bonhoeffer, spiritual formation had to be stronger than cultural formation. Christian discipleship had to be stronger than the military discipline of the Nazis. And the church must be stronger than the world around it that seeks to compromise its values and foundations. 
We live in an age where uh, we need to think about how the church is compromising. We may not have a, an explicit enemy against us like the German church, but the powers of culture come towards each of us, seeking to form us into the image of the world around us. A New York Times article from 2015 titled Googling for God says that it's been a bad decade for God, at, at least so far. Uh, Google searches for churches are 15% lower in the first half of this decade than they were in the last half of the previous one. Searches questioning God's existence are up. Porn searches are up. Heroin searches are up. And the top Google search in 2015, the top Google search, including the word God, was God of War, a video game. Culture stands around us. It stands apart from us, but it also seeks to form us into its image and oppose us when we would stand apart. And it's into that reality that we can take hope from the book of Ezra. A, a few weeks ago, Dave walked us through the history of the Israelites leading into the book of Ezra. Uh, and we spent a chunk of time setting the scene for this book. Right? The, the kingdom of Israel has been divided into two, and the, the northern kingdom is taken captive by the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyrians then begin to settle new people into the land, and they would kind of, as they took over new property, would uh, take the people out and put new people there, just kind of rotating where people were. Later, the, the southern kingdom of Judah is taken captive by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians are overthrown as the, the Persian Empire takes over. And with the Persians' king Cyrus, the book of Ezra starts, and as we journey through Ezra 1, uh, we read that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And so the book of Ezra starts with so much hope. As Dave talked about a couple weeks ago, we see the, the fulfillment of God's promises through the prophets. A group of close to 50,000 people journey 1,000 miles to begin rebuilding the temple. They begin by rebuilding the altar. They worship. They celebrate the Feast of Booths. And they begin to rebuild the foundation of the temple. We read in, in Ezra 3, 10 to 11, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals came to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great joy when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And we have God's people celebrating this is an exciting moment, exciting things are happening. There's momentum in the rebuilding of the temple. And as we see, and Donovan alluded to earlier, in Ezra 4, things start to get messy. Things get a little bit complicated. And this moment of, of joy, this moment of celebration, this momentum, it will all turn into disappointment as the work on the temple comes to a standstill. We'll spend the majority of our time today in Ezra 4. Uh, Ezra is a book in the Old Testament, which is the first half of your Bible. Uh, the, big chapter, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. And feel free to follow along on your Bible, your Bible app, or a Bible from the pew in front of you. It says in Ezra 4, 1 to 5, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you. 
for we worship your God as you do and have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you will have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged them, the people of Judah, and made them afraid to build. They bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so the Israelites continue to build, and the other people in the land come and they say, hey, we worship the same God. Let us help you build this temple. And as we talked about before, the Assyrian Empire would often settle new people into lands that they took over. And so these people come claiming that they worship the same God. They claim that they make sacrifices to him, but they're not true Jewish believers. These other so-called believers may claim to worship the same God, but it's because they're polytheistic. They don't worship the same God. They worship many gods. Right? They worship Yahweh and idols, or Yahweh and other gods from their home cultures. It's just a melting pot of whichever spiritual beings they latch onto. And so as they came into the land, they just adopted the local gods and they'd bring theirs from home. Even Cyrus, the king of Persia, who sent the Israelites back to rebuild, has the same belief. Uh, one commentator talking about this says that populations were allowed to worship their gods and rebuild their temples. In his own words, quoting from Cyrus, I returned them unharmed to their cells in their sanctuary to make them happy. But of course, there are strings attached to this arrangement. Continuing a quote of Cyrus, May all the gods whom I'm settled in their sacred centers ask daily of Bel and Nabu that my days be long, and may they intercede for my welfare. And so Cyrus allows populations to worship their own god. But he also asks that they intercede to their gods for him. And so when these polytheistic people come to Zerubbabel claiming that, you know, we're one and the same, we worship the same god, what does Zerubbabel do? Ezra 4.3, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. This narrative is without parallel in the entire Old Testament. With few exceptions in Kings and Chronicles, Israel's leaders are never applauded for their discernment or their uncompromising stances. Right? The, the tendency of the Israelites was to be tolerant and inclusive rather than intolerant and exclusive. We see this as we trace the history of the Old Testament from the, the Israelites making a golden calf as they journeyed through the desert with Moses to the book of Judges where the Israelites continually fall into idolatry, are ultimately restored by God and then fall again. And we also see it in Kings and Chronicles and the pattern of kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Dave talked about that a couple weeks ago. See, the, the constant pattern for Israel is not a, an outright rejection of God. It's, it's syncretism. It's adding on to God, right? It's adding these other things to this religion. Right? And God's fundamental declaration about himself is that he is the one and only God. Right? He is Yahweh. He is I am. He is Elohim, the Lord of Lords, the, the God of gods. He is wholly separate in, in all of creation. And to add anything to God is a fallacy. 
Some, sometimes we hear in our culture that uh, you know, all religions are the same or, or they're all pretty much the same or they're just different views of the same God, different facets, different sides of the same mountain. We see coexist bumper stickers that make it seem like it's all just kind of the same thing, but it's, it's not true. In John 14, 6, Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. Right? Jesus is not a way. He's not one of many ways. Jesus is the only way. He's the only source we have of life. He's the only source of salvation. He's the only source of redemption and of reconciliation between us and the Father. And so for the Israelites to reject help from these people groups is to take a stance and say, no, we're going to do this our way. We're going to do this God's way. We're going to maintain purity in this temple that we are building and the way that we're doing it. And because of this stance on exclusivity and this stance on purity, the Israelites now face persecution. Ezra 4, 4 to 5, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So not only did the Israelites not gain the help of these other people in the land, they actually now have to face the pain and the suffering that comes from working in the face of opposition. It would have been really easy for Zerubbabel and the other leaders to, to just ease up, just compromise just a little and say, yeah, we'll take the help, like help us build this temple. It would have gotten done faster. It would have been easier work. But they don't. They stand firm in their faith. This idea is true in so many areas of church history. Dave talked a little bit about um, the Reformation. And today, October 31st, we celebrate Reformation Sunday. And we do that because 500 years ago, Martin Luther stood up to the Catholic Church and to practices they had added that, that weren't biblically based and traditions they had. And he published a document we know as the 95 Theses. It's a document of 95 issues he had with the Catholic Church in that day and age. Martin Luther stood in his faith and stood for biblical standards. He was excommunicated by the church. He faced many controversies and opponents, but he stood firm and sparked the Reformation that led to Protestantism. And the church as we know it today is only possible because Martin Luther stood strong in the face of opposition. The church receives many offers for help that would come just with a little bit of compromise. Uh, some of you may remember a few years ago the situation going on with Canada summer jobs grants. And if the church had loosened our stance on, on sexuality, we could have had better access to summer job grants. Right? By, by preaching and teaching messages that aren't as challenging, potentially we would come across as more welcoming and we want people to feel welcome here, but at least we'd save ourselves having to have some difficult conversations with people. But we hold firm in our stances. With Renew, our contemporary service, we have a, a song team, a group of us that meets one or two times a year to talk about all the songs that we sing. And we talk about new songs we want to add and, and songs that we're not playing anymore that we want to remove from our list. And we talk about things like playability for our musicians. Uh, we talk about things like singability for tone-deaf people like me. We talk about tempo and does it fit in the, the culture of worship that we have here at Ellerslie. But before we get to any of those questions, we actually sit back and we say, hey, does this song communicate the truth of the gospel? Does this song and the words we're singing point people to Jesus? Because if it doesn't, then why are we going to sing it on a Sunday, right? We don't sing songs that aren't pointing people to Jesus. And we've even changed the words in some of our songs ever so slightly from the originals to better reflect what we believe. 
Pastor Dave and I taught the membership class this last week, and we had to walk through our membership covenant that we have. There's some, some hard standards in there. Any of our volunteers in children's ministry and other areas that are working in a, a teaching capacity have to meet our lifestyle commitment we ask them to sign, right? It means sometimes that people are excluded from those positions. And yeah, everyone is welcome to attend and participate here at Ellerslie, but our teachers, those that are in positions of authority, they have to line up with our statement of faith. They have to hold on to the same beliefs that are so core and central to us. Barry H. Corey, the president of Biola University, he said this regarding the, the church's response to culture at large. In my nine years as president of Biola, I have become convinced that we need a generation of Christians with deep convictions regarding what is true, grounded in the word of God. We need a generation of Christians courageous in their faith, empowered by the spirit of God. And we need a generation of Christians whose demeanor is civil, kind, and compassionate, modeled by the son of God. And convictions held with courage and civility. In a, a podcast I listened to with Jason Ballard from Alpha Canada, he shared a, a line that stood out to me, uh, that we need to be a generation of Christians who live out a courageous and compassionate orthodoxy. Right? A courageous and compassionate orthodoxy. I want you to remember that line. Orthodoxy means right belief, ortho, right or correct, doxy, belief or understanding. And as Christians, we have to have a right belief about our faith, about the values we hold on to, about the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way to heaven. And we hold those positions with courage. Courage in the face of opposition, courage to stand up against claims that Christianity is offensive, courage to hold on to these orthodox positions even when it's difficult, even when it'd be easier to let up just a little bit and let people help build the temple. But we also live lives of compassion. Right? We know that not everyone understands the church, not everyone has heard the gospel, that many people have been hurt by the church in the past, and our goal is not to be jerks. Right? Our, goal, our goal is to be people that demonstrate God's love. And we do that by standing strong with a courageous and compassionate orthodoxy. As we come back into Ezra 4, things start to get a little bit tricky. Uh, picking up again in verse 5, it says that all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabeel, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And so if you remembered every single name from Dave's talk a couple weeks ago, you might know what's going on, but I'll catch everyone up if you're a little lost. We jump here for a period of about 100 years. King Cyrus ruled from uh, 539 BC to 529. Darius, the next king mentioned, uh, ruled from 519 to 486. Uh, Darius's son Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, depending on if it's his Greek or Hebrew name, uh, ruled from 486 to about 465. And, and Artaxerxes I, the son of Xerxes, ruled from 465 to about 424. And so much of the rest of this chapter of Ezra 4 is not chronological. Uh, it's a little bit more of an aside. Right, the author picks up in the narrative with the, the first bit of opposition that Zerubbabel faces and then just continues on to say that this opposition is continuous. It's not an isolated incident, and Ezra and Nehemiah was originally one book, um, and it emphasizes the point that throughout the entire history of rebuilding the temple and the city, there was this ongoing opposition. 
In verse 6, we read they sent letters of petition to Ahasuerus. In verse 7, they write letters to Artaxerxes. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. Uh, to Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, which is the province where Israel was, they send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations, referencing some of the work of Nehemiah in the future. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the books of the record of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid to waste. We make known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no position in the province beyond the river. And so those who oppose the work in Jerusalem, they don't just grumble and groan and complain and make things difficult. They're actively working against it, using every tool that they have. They challenge the motives of the rebuilding. They challenge their intention. They use bureaucratic tools to slow down and challenge and seek to halt the work being done. In verse 12, they accuse the people of being rebellious. And Persia had been plagued by a number of rebellions, so they're playing into the fear of the leaders. They claim threats that the people will stop paying taxes, dishonor the king, openly rebel, and ultimately that they're going to seek to try and become independent of Persia. And so Artaxerxes responds saying in, in Ezra 4.21, Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this manner. Why should damage grow to hurt the king? And then verse 24 picks back up in the time of Zerubbabel, kind of resumes where we were in verse 5. And here we read that because of all the opposition they were facing in rebuilding the temple, then the work on the house of God, being the temple that is in Jerusalem, stopped and ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's it. That's the end of the chapter. It's not a very optimistic ending to this section. The Israelites face challenges and face challenges and opposition for all the days of rebuilding from different kings and different people groups that are around them. For generation after generation, they were opposed. And in the time of Zerubbabel, their work stopped for a period that we estimate to be around 16 years. 16 years of waiting to finish the temple. And here's what I want us to take away from this passage, right? Both the, the narrative of Zerubbabel, but also just the theme of opposition that the author has presented to us. And it's that opposition is not an anomaly, right? Opposition is not an anomaly. For the people of God, expecting opposition is, is a little bit like our default stance. For the psalmist, opposition is, is a normal experience. And in 2 Timothy, Paul tells us that indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In John 15, Jesus says to the disciples that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, 
but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. In life, we will face persecution because we hold on to our faith. In the book, Persecuted, the global assault on Christians, the authors have as their goal to focus on a, a single underreported fact that Christians are the single most widely persecuted religious group in the world today. This includes Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, liturgical, evangelical, charismatic, and hundreds of other no-name sects who embrace the belief that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. And there's persecution comes for a variety of reasons, but especially the desire for total political or religious dominance. Governments and political entities and nations such as China, India, North Korea, Vietnam, Iran, and elsewhere have interfered and opposed the advancement of God's work. Right? But those involved in, in God's renewing work will experience opposition from those who don't understand his ways. It should not surprise us when opposition comes. We take encouragement in this passage from Ezra, and we take encouragement in other passages throughout Scripture, some that we read today, that we are not alone in facing persecution. We're not alone in facing opposition for our faith. We take encouragement when we see that others have been through what we've been through. We take encouragement from the fact that the Israelites endured through different kings and rulers coming against them. We take encouragement in the history of the church and Martin Luther and Dietrich Bonhoeffer as culture came against them. And in this passage specifically, I, I take a lot of hope in the fact that the Israelites were stopped for 16 years. It sounds really negative, but uh, there's been no obstacle in my life that took me 16 years to overcome, so I think I'm doing pretty well. Right? If an obstacle comes that takes me 16 years and is going to hinder me for 16 years, then I will struggle. And I will hope that I can stand as firm as the Israelites did in holding to their stance, even when I kept them at a standstill. Right? So as, as believers in a culture that stands against us, what do we do? We stand firm in our faith. We expect opposition. And we rely on the Lord. Ezra 5, that Dave will get into uh, next week, opens with two prophets coming to the Jews with words of prophetic encouragement. They come with God's power to speak life into the Jews, to reinvigorate the mission of rebuilding the temple. And ultimately, in each of our lives, we're going to face opposition, and we're going we're to do what we can do to stand firm in our faith. Right? But progress new life, new energy, revitalization, the, the ability to not only endure, but to actually move forward in what God is calling us to do, to move forward in the face of opposition, that only comes when we rely on God alone. I'll invite the, the worship team up uh, as we close here, but I lead a, a young adults Bible study here at the church on Monday nights, um, and we've been studying the book of Acts. And this last week we studied Acts chapter 8. And Acts 8 is, is pretty early in the life of the church as uh, they're beginning to move forward and spread. And it picks up right after the death of Stephen, who's the first martyr of the early church. Uh, Acts 8, this is verses 1 through 4. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. I'm talking about Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, 
entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so in the, the face of opposition, even to the point of death, the early church continued to move forward, standing firm in their faith, expecting opposition and relying on the Lord as they went forward preaching the gospel. And my, my prayer for each one of us today in this room is that we would be able to stand firm in our faith, that we would be able to expect opposition, that we would ultimately rely on God as our source of strength to endure. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are our source. We thank you for the example in the book of Ezra throughout scripture and throughout church history of people opposing the work of the church and the work of your kingdom on this earth. And God, we take encouragement from the fact that we are not alone in facing persecution, that we are not alone in facing opposition, that we are not alone with facing discomfort for our stances. And so God, wherever we find ourselves this week, whether it's work, school, with our neighborhoods and our communities, God, I just ask that you would be with each one of us, that we'd be able to connect with you, that we would rely on your strength as we move forward. Amen.